to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Luke, chapter 5, verse 12, as we follow along with today's lesson. There was a very advanced state of leprosy who, seeing Jesus, fell on his face and begged him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately the leprosy departed from him. Now, under the law, it was unlawful to touch a leper. Mosaic law. And some wonder why Jesus would violate the Mosaic law. My personal opinion is that he didn't. I believe that the action was simultaneous. That as the man said, Lord, if thou wilt, thou can make me clean. And I think the minute Jesus said, I will, he was cleansed of his leprosy. By the time Jesus touched him, he was no longer a leper. I see it as just a combined action. And by the time Jesus touched him, the leprosy had already departed. And he charged him to tell no man, but just go and show himself to the priest and offer for your cleansing according to uh, the commandment of Moses for a testimony to them. Let it be a witness to the priest. Just go and show yourself and, and do that which was commanded by Moses. Now back in Leviticus chapter uh, 13 and 14, we have the Mosaic law concerning the leper and all of the rules and the regulations uh, that uh, applied to a person with leprosy and uh, the uh, method by which a person who did have leprosy could be received back into the community. The examination by the priest and the setting apart for several days, the second examination, and uh, then Uh, When it was determined that there was no more leprosy, uh, then there was to be certain sacrifices offered in certain ways, and uh, the leper would be received back into uh, the, the community. The interesting thing to me uh, we read there in, in Leviticus, now this is the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. Uh, That, to me, is a very interesting statement because um, 
Leprosy was incurable and remains to the present time incurable. They are able now to arrest leprosy, which is now called Hansen's disease, and they can arrest it, they can stop its development, but they can't cure it. And yet, the interesting thing to me is that God made provision for his supernatural overriding of the natural condition of a person which was incurable, and yet God made provisions for him to operate and to cure that which was incurable so that that person could come back into the community. Uh, So God wants to work. And, And so if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus said, I will. It shows how that God is desiring to work and has left the opening that he might work even in an incurable situation such as the leper. So um, I love that. The law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. Now, so much the more went there the fame abroad of Jesus, and great multitudes came together to hear, and he healed, and to be healed by him of their infirmities. Some came to hear, and others came just to be healed. I think that this is always the case. There are some who come just to receive the benefits They're not really that interested in obeying the commandments of Jesus, following him, but they would like to receive some of the benefits. The great healing campaigns always has a certain percentage of people that aren't really interested in committing their lives to the Lord. They're just interested in being healed of their infirmities, and thus was the case even in the time of Christ. Now, with the great multitudes and the pressure that was there constantly because of the multitudes and the needs and the pressing needs of the multitude, we find Jesus resorting to prayer. He withdrew himself into the wilderness for prayer. The greater the pressure, the more Jesus saw the necessity of getting alone in prayer. I think that Luke does a very commendable service to us in that he gives us a great insight into the prayer life of Jesus. And the thing that I think impresses me most about the prayer life of Jesus is that if he saw the necessity for prayer being who he was, the very Son of God. If he saw the necessity of prayer, who in the world do we think we are that we can possibly survive the pressures of this world without prayer? That we can somehow get by without prayer? Jesus, in his prayer life, certainly indicates to us the importance of and the necessity of prayer, that prayer be a very integral part of your very being, 
that we learn to rely upon and depend upon the strength that comes from prayer. Now it came to pass on a certain day, as he was teaching, that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by. They were the scribes, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal. So on this particular day, the critics were there, the Pharisees and the doctors of law. They've been attracted also. Now, in the Galilee region at this time, there were 10 cities around the Sea of Galilee with a population of at least 15,000. They were known as the Decapolis. And so there was a very large population, much larger than there is today, around the Galilee region. And coming up from Jerusalem, from the south, from Judea, were the Pharisees, the doctors of the law, listening and looking for flaws, seeking to find fault. And the power of the Lord was present to heal the people. And behold, men brought in a bed a man which was taken with a palsy. And they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before Jesus. And when they could not find by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, they went on the housetop and they led him down through the tiles with his couch in the midst before Jesus. So these resourceful men coming to the house where Jesus was teaching, finding that they couldn't get into the house, the multitude of people crowded around, climbed up on the roof, removed a few tiles, let the man down in front of Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said unto him, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. Now, sometimes there is a direct relationship between a person's sin and a physical malady that they might be suffering. For instance, the sin of promiscuous sex often leads to many forms of venereal disease. Uh, the syphilis and other venereal diseases that come as the result of uh, promiscuous sex. And it is thought by many Bible commentators that this man probably had syphilis. And it had advanced to the state where this man had become paralyzed, or more or less not paralyzed, but a, a, a paralytic of sorts. With the palsy, there was the constant shaking, the the weakening of the muscles, the inability to walk. You had to be carried. And it could be that it resulted from some 
encounter perhaps with a prostitute, who knows. But having developed the palsy from his, as a direct consequence of his sin, don't you know that it played upon his mind continually? If I had not, I wouldn't be in this condition. It's amazing how that one foolish mistake can cause a person a lifetime of suffering, pain, sorrow. We are making decisions all the time. And one foolish decision can often be so costly. And for years you can rue a bad decision, a stupid move. So many people find themselves physically incapacitated because of a foolish move in driving their car. A split-second decision. I know it's dangerous to pass. I know that it's a two-lane road. I know that I can't see around the curve, but there hasn't been much traffic. I'll take a chance. I'll pass. You know, you, you sort of wait and hover, and then you think, go for it. You put your foot on the throttle, you pull out, and then here is a truck. No place to go. Your body is smashed, your spinal column is broken, and you spend your life paralyzed because of one foolish split-second decision. Cost a lifetime of suffering and pain. And, and don't you know that you live that moment over and over and over and over again? That moment when you decided to go for it, to put down the throttle, to try and make it, and, and you relive that foolish decision until it haunts you, it torments you. And thus I can imagine with this man, the sin whereby he contracted this disease that created the palsy. Probably over and over and over again, it tormented his mind. And I think the most Glorious words he could ever hear were the words that were spoken by Jesus when he said, your sins are forgiven. A tormenting conscience, you're forgiven. David said, oh, how happy is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. And so I'm certain that there was a burst of joy in this man's soul when Jesus said, thy sins are forgiven. I'm certain that there was also, equally with his friends, a bit of disappointment. I think that they probably thought, uh-uh, Lord, that's not why we tore up the roof and let this guy down. We want you to heal him. I do know that the Pharisees had an adverse reaction. Who does he think he is? saying, thy sins be forgiven. Only God can forgive sins. And, and they were upset at the statement of Jesus. 
Now the question is, were the Pharisees right in their assertion that only God can forgive sins? And the answer is yes, they were right. That is true. Only God can forgive sins. When David sinned with Bathsheba and the subsequent plotting of the murder of her husband, as David prayed for forgiveness, he said to God, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this great evil in thy sight. Sin is against God. It may affect fellow men. You may lie about me, and it might hurt. But you're really sinning against God that said, thou shalt not bear false witness. So it is the violating of the law of God. That's what sin is all about. And because it is violating God's law, only God has the capacity and power to forgive sin. Only God can say, your sins are forgiven. So they were correct in their assumption. So then what is Jesus proving when he said, thy sins are forgiven? He's proving that he is God, of course. Now, this created a real turmoil The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? And was it blasphemous if he were not God? Yes. If he were not God, he was speaking blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answering said unto them, What is it that you reason in your hearts? What is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk? What is easier to say? Easier to say your sins are forgiven. Now, I may be a quack, and I might wear a big cross and a a robe, and I might walk down the streets and just say, your sins are forgiven, you know, and and walk around just telling everybody your sins are forgiven. And and people would, you know, if you walked up and down 4th Street in Santa Ana, people would soon get familiar with the fact that there's some quack up on 4th Street with a robe and and all, and goes around saying your sins are forgiven, you know. And and people would come up and they'd say, wait, he should be along pretty quick, you know, And, and, and they'd watch for, you know, you become sort of a, you know, a notable character in the community who was a few bricks short of a load. I mean, you just didn't know that you were some kind of an, you know. So you could say that, but how can you prove it? How can people prove that you couldn't really forgive sins? Because you can't see it, you see. That's an inward work within the spirit of man that can't be observed readily. In, in time it can be observed, but it isn't observed readily. But if you say to a man who is paralyzed there on the cot, rise up and walk, that's, that's a horse of a different color because now whether or not there is power in your words can easily be proved. 
If the man rises up and walks, then it proves that there's power in what you said. You spoke with authority and power. If the man just maybe struggles a bit, tries to get up, and then falls back on the couch, then there's, there's no power in what you said. And, and it's, so it's easy to prove whether or not there's true power in, in the word that you spoke. So Jesus said, what's easier? To say your sins are forgiven you or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins. I'm giving this, Jesus said to you, as a proof that you might know that I do have the power here on earth to forgive sins. He said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto you, arise and take up your couch and go to your house. All right, we're putting it on the line. I mean, this is it. It's on the line now. If the fellow lies there, Jesus is totally discredited. But immediately he rose up before them, took up that whereon he lay, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. Don't you know he did? And I think he was probably glorifying God just as much for the fact his sins were forgiven as, as for the fact that he was walking again. I mean, ooh, glory, double blessed. My sins are forgiven. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God. Now, Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that when they see your good works, they glorify your Father which is in heaven. And certainly, uh, he it was an example of that. When he would do these good works, the people would glorify God. He did them in such a way as they brought glory to God. He did not do them with a lot of flair and a lot of, you know, kinds of things that drew attention to himself. But he did them in such a way, not like in a circus environment, but just in such a plain, natural way that it didn't draw a lot of attention to himself, but it, the net result was that people were glorifying God for the work that was done. And they were filled with awe, amazement, saying, we've seen some strange things today. Yes. Now, after these things, he went forth and he saw a tax collector, publican or a tax collector, whose name was Levi, and we know him as Matthew. And he was sitting at the receipt of custom, and he said unto him, follow me. Now, a tax collector was a hated individual. He was always considered a collaborator with Rome. He collected taxes for Rome. And they had um, many different taxes. The Roman government had, had exacted on them. They had a poll tax that everybody had to pay just for the right of living. No matter how rich or poor, that was the same tax for everybody, and that's just the right to breathe the Roman air, uh, to live under Roman rule. 
Then they had a 10% income tax that could be paid either in a 10% of your crops or the crops sold in 10% of the money, but there was a 10% income tax. And then there were taxes for uh, transporting goods. And uh, they had everywhere along the line these little toll booths where you had to pay so much tax for how many wheels you had on your cart. You had to pay tax for the goods that you were transporting from one area to another. And it was at this kind of a, uh, he was a customs officer actually, and uh, Capernaum was one of those cities where uh, it was on the route between Egypt and uh, Damascus and so a lot of goods were passing through and so he was there collecting taxes for Rome. Tax collectors were notable crooks. And the interesting thing, there is a, there is a, um, a, a um, they discovered a, a uh, sort of a, in some of the writings in, in, uh, in Greek, they found this notation that marveled that there was an actually an honest taxpayer, an honest tax collector. I mean, it was it was as though it's that's about as weird as you can get. I mean, as unusual a thing as you can find, an honest tax collector because they were notably dishonest. Anything that they could collect above the quota was their own, and thus all the tax collectors were very rich men as well as hated. And here is the tax collector named Levi sitting there at his toll booth and Jesus said to him, follow me. And he left all, the toll booth, rose up, followed Jesus. And Levi made him a great feast in his own house. And there was a great company of tax collectors and of others that sat down with him. Having followed Jesus, he now wants to introduce Jesus to his friends. And about the only friends a tax collector had were other tax collectors. And so he invited all of these tax collector friends that they might meet Jesus. And... The scribes and the Pharisees murmured to his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with these tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not the physician, but those that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." Now, a little further on in Luke's gospel, we're going to find Jesus eating with another tax collector. That's the story of Zacchaeus there in Jericho, and you remember the story well. Short little fellow, and he was curious. He heard that Jesus was passing through. Now, being a tax collector, he dare not mix with the crowd. They would pinch him, elbow him, and he would come out bruised if he dared to go into a crowd of people. So he went ahead of the crowd, climbed a tree, a safe place, 
in order that he might just watch Jesus as he passed by under the tree. And to his amazement, Jesus walked right up to the tree, looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come on down. I want to come to your house for dinner. And as Jesus was eating at the house of Zacchaeus, again, these Pharisees and scribes were murmuring because he was eating with sinners. And it was there that Jesus said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. So twice we find him eating with tax collectors. Twice we find them finding fault with him for doing so. But there's more to it than that. Because in that culture, eating with a person had a connotation of becoming one with the person in their minds. Because of their habits of eating, sauces, soups on the table, bowl of soup, and and. Not everyone had their own little individual bowl with their own spoon and uh, very sanitized and sanitary. But with the soup, you, you just had bread. And so the one bowl of soup, you'd all just dip it in, your bread in it, and, and eat it. No rules of etiquette that says you can't put the same piece back in the second time, you know. Put it in and suck it, you know, and back in again. So eating was a real sharing of germs. So what I've got, you're going to (laughs) get. And what you've got, I'm going to get. And and they really looked at it as as a uniting of of persons. It's becoming one with the other person. And here he is eating with sinners. He's becoming one with sinners. You see, a Jew would never eat with a Gentile. Never. I mean, that was strictly forbidden. Even Peter got caught up in that. Uh, When uh, the Gentile church in Antioch, where Paul was ministering, Peter came up to visit, and he sat down and ate with the Gentiles until there were certain brothers from the church in Jerusalem who came up and, and... They were sort of shocked, and so Peter quit eating with the Gentiles, and it caused a division in the church. So Paul rebuked him for creating a division. For until these brothers came from Jerusalem, you ate with the Gentiles, and now you've separated yourself, and it's caused a split here. Paul said, I rebuked him to his face because he was at fault. But it was that old tradition, and we're going to get that in just a moment, the, the, the traditions and and what the whole tradition can have upon people. Jesus was identifying with sinners. Interesting. Because later on, he is to take the sins of the world upon himself, and he's to die for sinners. He's come to seek and to save that which was lost. No man (laughs) is too far gone but God's grace can't reach him. Now, some people don't like that. I understand there's quite a furor. There's a lot of stuff going on in the newspaper, letters to editors, and so forth. A lot of people don't want Dahmer in heaven. 
And uh, they're quite upset that he has made a profession of Christ before he was murdered in the prison. Uh, and, and so now there's a big debate on whether or not he's in heaven. <laughs> and many, many people just don't want him there. But no man is beyond the grace of God. No man. So having started now this criticism and finding fault, they carry it on. It's, it's a bad thing to get in a critical mode. Because when a person once gets in a critical mode, it's hard to get out of it. You begin to find fault with everything. And you begin to go, wherever you go, you are looking now for the faults. You're not open to receive that which is valuable or good, but you're picking, you're, you're just judging, you're looking for something that isn't quite up to your beliefs or standards, and, and you're, you're, you're tuned in to find what's wrong with what is being said. And that's sort of sad. But I've seen many people that, that have taken this twist in the road, this bent, and once they take that bend, it seems like they are now critical of everything. And they feel that they have to voice their righteous opinion on every subject. Rather sad indeed. And, and it's, it's a pharisaical kind of an attitude. That's, that's the very same kind of a trap that the Pharisees were in. They were always looking to find fault. And so now it's begun, it's going to continue and only get heavier. And so they said to Jesus, why is it that the disciples of John fast often and they make prayers and likewise the disciples of the Pharisees, our disciples too, but yours, here they are eating and drinking, you know, here at the house of Levi. And he said unto them, can you make the children of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? I mean, while the bridegroom is there, it's party time. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them. That Greek word taken away is taken away by force, referring to the cross. The, bride, the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then shall they fast in those days. And so he spoke a parable unto them. And he said, No man puts a piece of a new garment upon an old. If otherwise, then both the new maketh a tear, and the piece that was taken out of the new agrees not with the old. Uh, they didn't know anything about samphorized shrunk in those days. So that new cloth, when it was washed, would always shrink. So you would make the garment several sizes bigger than it needed to be, and then you'd wash it and get it down to size. But uh, the shrinking of, of the cloth was, uh, it was always just, they counted on it. That is why if you had an old garment, you wouldn't sew a new patch on it. Because the first time you washed it, the new patch would shrink 
And of course, it would just make the tear worse in the, in the old garment. So it was just something they didn't do. They wouldn't patch a new piece of cloth onto an old garment because it'll just make the tear worse. And no man puts new wine into old skins. The bottles were, were leather skins. And um, he said, you don't put the new wine in the old skins. Now, if you did, it would cause an immediate fermentation process of the old wine that was in the old skin. You pour the new wine in. It would start an immediate fermentation process, which would create the gases that would swell, and it would burst uh, the old skin, and, and it, the, it would all just pour out. So you would put the new juice into new skins, supple leather skins. Uh, and uh, else the new wine will burst the bottles and it will be spilled in the bottle and the bottles will perish. But new wine must be put into new skins and both of them are then preserved. It's preserved in the new skin. Now he is talking about their, the Pharisees, he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees, and, and they are locked in the old traditional systems, the old traditional religious systems, that they're locked into it. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm bringing new wine, but you just can't put it in those old skins. A new piece of cloth, but you can't sew it onto the old garment. Otherwise, it'll just rip the garment, or otherwise it'll just break the old skins. I believe that reformation of an old religious system is probably an impossibility. Once the old skins get set, they're not able to receive a new work of God's Spirit. Too rigid. Sad, but true. But there are so many people like the Pharisees who have been locked by tradition into an old religious system. And Jesus said that no man having drunk the old wine immediately desires a new, for he says, oh, the old is better. I mean, there is that, and you've seen it. People who are so set in their ways, they're, they're not even willing to try. They, they're, they're not interested in what God might be doing today, more interested in what God did 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago or whatever, but not interested in what God might be wanting to do today because they're locked in their traditions, their religious traditions. And so what Jesus is speaking about here is is something that is quite common and continues to the present time. People who are locked in their old traditional systems just can't take a new, fresh work of God in their hearts and in their lives. Pharisees, oh, how locked they were in the traditions. And how often Jesus came against them because of their rigid position in their traditions, rebuking them because actually they were putting their traditions above the word of God. 
not just on an equal par with God's word, but above God's word. And so Jesus said, you just don't put the new wine in the old skins. So he was creating a new order with his disciples that God might pour his spirit and this new work of God's spirit into the new skins. But you know, even the new skins have become old. And so God, when he desires to work, a fresh new work seems to always go outside of the system and starts a whole new work. Because it doesn't take long, unfortunately, for systems to become rigid, to become established, to develop their own traditions and their own ruts. And it's so easy to get in a rut. Well, this is the way we've done it. And this is the way we've been doing it for the past 15 years. And I don't see any need for change or reason why we should change. And people get in ruts so easily. But just remember, the only difference between a rut and a grave is the length and the depth. God keep us from the ruts, lest they become graves. Turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 6. Now it came to pass on the second Sabbath after the first... Now, I don't know what the first Sabbath was, but on the second Sabbath after the first. What we do find here in the beginning of the sixth chapter is the growing hostility of the religious leaders against Jesus. And basically, this hostility was coming from the fact that Jesus was violating their religious traditions. And so we see in these first two incidences that Luke points out, they were angry over his violation of their Sabbath day rules. Not the Sabbath day law, but their Sabbath day rules. About 200 years before Christ, they began to add to the uh, rules and regulations as they sought to interpret the law. And they had what they called the uh, Abdal, which was the fathers and the ideas of the teaching of the fathers. And in it, they said that it was not lawful to reap on the Sabbath day or to thresh on the Sabbath day. And later it was added that it was unlawful to winnow on the Sabbath day, that which was threshed, or it was also unlawful to prepare food. So Jesus was going through the wheat fields with his disciples, and his disciples plucked the ears of corn and did eat, rubbing them in their hands. Now, uh, when the wheat is ready for harvest, it's dry, 
And you can take that wheat and uh, pick it off of the top of the uh, stem and, and you can rub it in your hands. And the purpose, of course, of rubbing it in your hands is to uh, get the chaff off of the kernel. And so you rub it in your hands and then you can blow it. And then the wheat can actually be eaten uh, just as it is off of the uh, plant. It's, uh, the kernels are hard, but not too hard. If you have bad teeth, I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, you can crack your teeth. But uh, if you're like I am, and you've met a dentist who believes in that song, Crown Him With Many Crowns, uh, <laughs> then you're safe to chew on the wheat again. Now, the disciples, as they were going through, were picking the wheat, rubbing it in their hands, blowing the chaff away, and, and eating. They were hungry. Now, that was perfectly legal. One of the benevolent laws is found in Deuteronomy chapter 23, 25, and that is if you're going through the field and you're hungry, you can pick the eat, the wheat to eat. And uh, you just could not put a sickle to your neighbor's wheat. Uh, you weren't to harvest any of it, but you could uh, pick it and eat to satisfy uh, your hunger. And so what they were doing was perfectly legal, passing through the field just to satisfy their own hunger, picking and, and rubbing it and, and uh, eating the wheat. But certain of the Pharisees said unto them, that is to the disciples, why are you, why are you doing that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath days? And Jesus answering them said, Have you not read so much as this, what David did when he himself was hungry and those that were with him? And, and Jesus is, is sort of uh, chiding them. These are the men who know the scriptures. These are the men who pride themselves in the knowledge of the scriptures. Haven't you ever read what David did? How he went into the house of God and he did take and eat the showbread and gave it to them that were with him, which is not lawful to eat but for the priests alone. Now, the showbread was 12 loaves of bread that were put upon this little table in the holy place uh, where only the priests were allowed to go. And every week, they would change the loaves of bread. The loaves of bread represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And it was that they might be there in remembrance before God continually. But it was counted to be holy because it had been there before the Lord. But David was traveling with his men. He was actually fleeing from Saul. And he came to the tabernacle. And the priest, who was a friend of David, he went in and told him his problems. And so the, the men were hungry, and uh, they were really on the run. 
And so uh, the priest didn't have anything but the showbread, so he gave it to David, and David ate the showbread and the men that were with him to satisfy their hunger. Now, David, of course, was revered by these men. He was one of the great heroes of the Bible. And Jesus is pointing out that this hero of yours did that which was not lawful to do. Now, what Jesus is pointing out is that God's laws were for the benefit of man. And if you look at the laws of God, you find that they are for the benefit of man. You would all be much better off if you would keep the laws of God. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, they are the rules for sound health. Spiritual health, physical health, emotional health. And thus, though the law said that only the priests were to eat the showbread, here was a case of human hunger which overrides this prohibition. Now, the disciples were hungry, and their hunger overrode the traditions of the elders, which said you were not to reap on the Sabbath day or thresh or winnow or prepare food, and in reality, they had done all four. Uh, they had picked the corn, they had threshed it by rubbing it in their hands, and then they winnowed it by blowing out the chaff, and actually they were preparing food. So uh, they had violated all four. But hunger overrides human need. God doesn't mean that the laws should, that, uh, should prevent us from taking care of basic needs. And, and that's never the intent or the purpose of the law. And uh, as I say, the law was intended to benefit man, not to hinder or hurt man. So he said unto them that the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. So he said, I, I have precedence over the Sabbath even. And so it came to pass on another Sabbath that he entered into the synagogue. We are told in the other Gospels that this was the synagogue in Capernaum. And he taught. And there was a man whose right hand was withered. Now only Luke tells us it was the right hand. Matthew and Mark tell of this incident, but you might figure that a doctor would note which hand it was. And Luke tells us it was the right hand that was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him whether he would heal on the Sabbath day. And their purpose was that they might accuse him, might make accusations against him. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees quite often sat at the front of the congregation. The women were sitting on one side, the men were sitting on the other side. And... They were there to make certain that the law was kept. And if a question came concerning the law, they would ask them as they sat there in these seats of judgment, more or less, uh, to oversee and to make sure everything went according to 
the law. And so Jesus, realizing that they were watching him and that they were wondering whether or not he would heal this man on the Sabbath day, because that was against their traditions. You could not heal on the Sabbath day. You could take whatever measures were necessary to preserve a person's life, but nothing towards healing. Had to wait until the Sabbath day was over before you could apply a bandage. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Luke in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on Jesus and the law. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Luke 5-6 through 6 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, we thank you for the work, the fresh work of your Holy Spirit. And God, keep us ever supple, pliable. Keep us, Lord, from rigidity that would preclude our receiving any fresh work of your Spirit. Oh, Lord, may we always be open to receive. Free us, Lord, from any traditions that may have begun to develop. And help us, Lord, to always walk in an openness before you. Ready to hear, ready to receive, ready to respond, ready to obey. In Jesus' name we ask. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. This Christmas, why not give the gift of God's Word by choosing the Word for Today Bible featuring Chuck Smith's notes highlighting a simple understanding of the Scriptures. This Bible includes an exhaustive concordance, cross-references, in-text and color maps, words of Christ in red, and Chuck Smith's commentary notes including Hebrew and Greek word origins. And... 
In the Word for Today Bible softcover edition, we've included Chuck Smith's book, How Can a Man Be Born Again, which is very informative for a new believer. It's our prayer that as your loved ones read the Word for Today Bible, Chuck's commentaries will give a simple understanding into the scriptures, causing God's Word to come to life in their heart, not only drawing them into a closer relationship with the Lord, but stirring them to passionately serve God. For more information, please call the Word for Today at 800 272 9673 or visit us online at thewordfortoday.org to read a preview.